We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Chelsea MacMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual directors, intuitives, and activists exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change. So Chelsea, Halloween is coming up. And I know we wanted to do some seasonal episodes um, around the festivities during this time of year. But you and I know that there's more to Halloween than just gross candy corn and sexy pizza rat costumes. <laughs> what? That is not a thing. Sex. Yes. Sex. Yes. <laughs> Google it. It's real. No. Sexy I can't. Pizza I rat. refuse to believe that. That, is, that takes all hope for the world that I have. <laughs> there's a sexy costume for anything you can imagine. <laughs> Ugh. It's actually a party game I've played with my friends before. Like, just think of a random thing and figure out if you can find a sexy co- Halloween costume <laughs> online for it. And you probably can. That's good to know. I never I never yeah. knew. <laughs> Is this what um, fallen evangelicals do when they finally get to celebrate Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> Outside of church, of course. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So Halloween, when I was growing up in my evangelical church, uh, we didn't call it Halloween. We called it All Saints Eve. um, And we had to go to church and dress up like Bible characters. And that was where we got our candy. (laughs) And my dad would carve a pumpkin that said, Jesus is Lord. No. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Instead of instead of I was like, why can't we put a vase in the pumpkin? Why does it have to say Jesus is Lord? I feel like your evangelical experience is like it's a way more than way more intense than mine. Oh, yeah. It's like on steroids. You know, and the thing is, I know people who even worse. I know people who like shut their lights and like hid in their house on Halloween because they didn't want anybody like we at least (laughs) gave candy out to people like trick or treaters. Um, Yeah. So uh, so it's interesting because I grew up being like, why do we call it All Saints Eve and instead of Halloween and um, which is funny because in evangelical churches, they're not really into like the classic feast days of the church. But but classically, November 1st um, in the Catholic and Episcopal and, and most mainline Protestant churches um, acknowledge uh, November 1st as All Hallows or All Saints Day, which was a time when traditionally um, people would pray, celebrate and pray to the saints that had gone before them. And uh, and this was contracted into the night before, um, a lot of the traditions got merged with the Celtic traditions of Samhain, which was an ancient festival. And the Celts considered this time of the year to be a time of uh, there being a thin veil between this world and the world beyond. Mm. And so it was easier to be able to contact and talk to the spirits, um, both the sort of like otherworldly fairy spirits and also the spirits of the ancestors of the dead who would come to visit you. So 
Uh, so it's okay when we call them like St. John and St. Right, Paul, right. But, but, but not when but we're like... <laughs> not when we're like the ancestors. Yeah, and the fairies. Right, right, right. Um, and, then, and then November 2nd was All Souls Day when you would pray for all of the people who had gone before who you weren't maybe you weren't sure if they were saints or not because you're like I don't know if they went to heaven but let's pray that maybe they'll get there (laughs) just in case so and then of course the in Mexico you've got Dia de los Muertos um, where the indigenous traditions of the people there were merged with the Catholic tradition of All Saints Day Um, and there's oh I've been to uh, Dia de los Muertos um, sort of celebration at someone's house before who this was part of of her tradition that she invited us into. And it was really beautiful. We each brought like a memento of an ancestor that was close to us and, and placed them on the ofrenda and, oh, wow. and cool. told stories about it. Yeah. So it was really lovely. So, so there's something about this time of year that like across cultures, we want to contact our ancestors. Mm-hmm. It seems like we want, we think about the dead. We want to remember them. We want to, to feel them in our lives in some ways. I'm curious how this can relate to um, to social change and our justice work in the world. Yeah, well, I think it's actually really relevant because what I see right now is that we're dealing with a lot of the sort of, you know, I don't want to blame the ancestors for everything, but it's like that Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> like there's this stuff that's been going on for centuries, um, whether it's racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, uh, colonization, all of that stuff that we're really reaping the whirlwind of right now. We're seeing the effects of it in our world. And I think um, a lot in a lot of ways, activism is uh is this ancestral healing on a collective scale. In fact, someone we're going to be interviewing soon, uh, a woman named Jardana Peacock, uh, said recently, and I loved this when she said it, that ans- uh, she said anti-racism is ancestral healing work. And so we're going to talk today to two women who are doing ancestral healing work on a more individual level, um, on a more personal level. And we're going to talk about how doing that because our whole, our whole, uh, I think, framework here at The Rising at our podcast is that our individual work we do is not separate from the collective work that we do mm, in healing. Yeah. And so um, we're going to talk to uh, a Japanese woman who has like a really interesting story about coming from a family that um, uh, was has been both oppressed and and has has been perpetrators of oppression in their and their family lineage and then um a woman who's from new england whose family were colonizers that came over on the mayflower and talk about what that looks like for them to get in touch with those ancestral lineages and to do some healing around it and 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 how they've seen the effects of that healing play out in their lives i'm really excited uh to hear um, what they have to say. And, uh, yeah, one of the first times I ever had a, um, that I was part of an anti-racist, um, conversation, uh, the facilitator mentioned at the end, how, how our ancestors are, are, you know, cause it was a mixed group of, um, people of color and, and white people and how our ancestors didn't have these conversations, mm-hmm. uh, 50 years ago and 100 years ago. And so by doing this work now, we're actually healing the past. So um, I'm excited to hear more about that and welcome our guests. Today, we are joined by Kimmy Kawabori and Alyssa Fleet to talk about how healing the karma of the past in our ancestral lineages can impact the lives we're living today. 
From a young age, Kimmy has been able to see energies and spirits. Being adopted, she presumed that her abilities came from her birth family. After rejecting the mental illnesses she was diagnosed with to make sense of her problems, she found a community that helped her to explore and develop her gifts. As a descendant from Taiji, the Wailing Village featured in the documentary The Cove, and as a daughter of parents imprisoned in the World War II Japanese internment camps, she has a unique perspective on healing ancestral lines. With over 400 hours studying energy work, she loves moving energy so people can live clear and empowered lives. Welcome, Kimmy. Thank you very much. And Alyssa has been training in consciousness studies since 2001, including meditation, Buddhist psychology, engaged spirituality, family systems constellations, and shamanic healing. Her focus is how becoming conscious brings transformation for ourselves and our world. Thanks for being here, Alyssa. Thanks for doing this. Um, so I'm so excited to have both of you here with us today. Um, just to begin, Kimmy, would you mind telling your story and how you came to accept and explore and develop these gifts of yours? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, just from a young age, I could see things on the walls, crawling up things, uh, moving. Um, it was really unnerving. I grew up uh, very religious and I didn't feel like I could fully express what was going on for me and what I saw and what I knew. So that was very, really scary for me. Um, I, um, you know, always knew that I was adopted. I always, um, I always just felt a little bit different from everyone. <laughs> um, it, not just because I saw spirits and everything, but in very, in a lot of different ways as well. Um, and, you know, growing up, I also knew that my parents were in the Japanese internment camps and I was just completely obsessed with studying them because in school, we never learn about it. You never hear about the Japanese internment camps. So, um, you know, my mother would come to my school like every single year I was in school, she would come and talk to my classes about the Japanese internment camps. And I was just so like angry about it, um, that I really explored what that was like for us, um, as a family and what happened to my family, you know, all of their possessions were completely seized. Their bank accounts were seized. They were, you know, within, I think 24 or 48 hours, maybe they were taken from their homes. They were put in my, you know, just like horrible conditions. Like there was a old horse racetrack that my mother's family lived in for, I don't know how long, um, six or eight months, like literally they just put cardboard on top of the horse poop in the, in the horse stalls. Um, and then they were taken to another camp. And so I just became really, um, fascinated with how horrible <laughs> that was and what that meant for our family and how, how we were able, how they were able to, um, kind of, I guess, bounce back from that. Um, so I spent all of my school years, literally every single research project was on the Japanese internment camps. I was obsessed. I couldn't stop talking about it. And then later on, I, um, in 2000, I think six or four, whenever the movie, the Cove came out, I learned it was from Taiji and I knew my dad's family was from Taiji and I was so excited. I was like, Oh my gosh, there's a, a movie on our, on this tiny little fishing village. You know, it's like who, what, you know, it's so small. Um, why is someone doing a <laughs> documentary on it. And then I looked into it more and I was like, huh, yeah, okay. 
okay, that's that, that was our fam, like our families from there, you know, um, in Japan, if you have a, your family um, cemetery, that's, that's like where your family's from. That's where our family cemetery is from. And Kimmy, um, can you just tell people a little bit about The Cove for people who don't know that movie? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So what happened is um, it's an ancient like, I don't know, I, there's a lot of different time frames that people think it started, but I think maybe 1600s, 1700s. And um, Japan, the, this town just has this annual tradition. They just round up thousands of dolphins and they just absolutely slaughter them. Um, the rationale behind it is of a lot of different reasons. Um, uh, they try to sell it, sell um, whales and dolphins to um, aquariums or they try to, you know, I just, I can't really quite understand any, why, why it still happens. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the gist of it. And the cove was exposing this practice. Um, and cause I've been to Taiji and I've been to that cove. I didn't know what I was at that cove, but when I saw it in the movie, I was like, yep, I've been there and it is very secret. And I knew something big was happening, but I thought it was just cause I was on my ancestral land, but it was bigger than that. Um, well, and then also just kind of for a little more background, um, the Calabori family name, it starts in the 1700s, like it started in the 1700s. Most Japanese names don't start until the 1800s. So I asked my family in Japan, I was like, okay, why do you, what is our, you know, why did we, why did our name start so early? Um, because usually if it started before the 1800s, um, you, your family was some sort of samurai which we are not their royalty like emperor family we were not um or you were some sort of a landowner and so my family in japan they don't really remember but they were like our last name gives the intent uh, impression because it's river moat kawa is river bori is moat so they were like it we think that we had we owned land and we had a river moat around it and um and yeah. Did the practice of last names start with colonization? I believe it did. Yes. I think that's when the samurai and the emperors were dismantled. And so everyone kind of had to have a different way of uh, kind of understanding the world. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a good point too. Um, so yeah, landowners that were in Taiji. So I can, you know, I've talked to the line and, um, in my meditations and it seems like we were, um, did have some sort of, you know, source of power back then. Um, yeah. So, you know, kind of putting together that kind of dichotomy of like, wow, we were really oppressed in the Japanese internment camps. We literally lost everything. Each family was given $25 and a train ticket after they were in prison for four years. You know, we lost everything. And then, but we had so much when, you know, when we, we've also had a lot. We were landowners. We had a last name. We had some privilege and status before most people did. Um, so that was a very uh, weird <laughs> thing to be like, what do I do with that? Um, and then I'm adopted. So I don't, you know, I don't have any history on my birth mother and birth father and their lines. I have connected with them energetically, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what that's about. Um, I, I, from what I've, 
explored, um, I get my gifts from my birth mother's line. And that's why, like, none of my other cowboy or Shimada, like, family members, they don't, <laughs> they don't see these, they don't have these things either. Um, so that was uh, interesting, but also very, you know, um, I guess freeing to know that it's okay for me to have these gifts. That, you know, it's, I had to do a lot of work <laughs> to accept them. Um and like um, Rebecca said in the intro, yeah, I was diagnosed with a bunch of mental illnesses because I just couldn't deal with it. I didn't know what was going on. So, um, mm-hmm. Can- and so it's a lot of healing around, um, around that, but yes. Yeah. Oh no, I was just going to ask. Well, one thing I wanted to just bring up, cause I think you told me this before that your, your birth family is from the same f- town that your adopted family is from. Is that correct? Oh no. no uh, I don't not. know where they're from. Yeah. Cause I was born in Hawaii and then I was raised in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I did do some birth parent searching and it, according to the birth papers, my adoption papers, I'm I am full Japanese, mm-hmm. um, but then according to Twenty Three and Me and um, National Geographic's DNA test, I'm seventy five percent either Japanese or Chinese, depending on which test you look at. But I'm, and then also twenty about twenty three, twenty four percent Southeast Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, but hello, Southeast Asia is huge. So I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea what part. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Wow. Well, I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like, sort of? like for you growing up having these gifts and and how you sort of came to develop them and accept them yeah it was weird it was really frightening you know uh growing up in a christian church i was um you know if you saw spirits you were possessed by the devil and you were going to hell so oh my god i was like i have so many reasons i'm going to hell and it was just really frightening to me um i didn't feel like i could say anything so i developed ways to cope that got me these mental illness diagnoses. Um, yeah. And then I just, I, I was on medication for many years and that, wow, I was numbed out. And then I realized, um, like, I don't think I have, like, I'm like, I'm treating OCD, but I don't know if I have this anymore. And I'm treating like depression and bipolar, but I don't think I have this. So then when I stopped the medication, um, it was really freeing to me. And then I was married for a hot minute and really focused on being married. And then when I got divorced, I started seeing um, a lot of, I started seeing my visions again and my, and these energies again. And then luckily I ran into someone who also could see things and she introduced me to this community where I actually met Rebecca. Yay. So, um, (laughs) um, so then I started realizing like, Oh my God, I'm not crazy. And then I just started studying with them and, um, really starting to explore my gifts with that. And then they turned into gifts and not curses because I learned how to manage them. And, um, I'm still learning how to manage them, but, um, it's a, it's a much better journey than it, than it was before for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. I'd love to hear now from Alyssa. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Um, sure. So I'll just talk about how I came to um, uh, working with ancestors and looking at how ancestral healing is affecting us personally and um, in society. So um, 
I was actually born in Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, place where the pilgrims landed. And I grew up in, um, on Cape Cod in this very beautiful place and in a lot of ways had all of the, um, you know, privileges that, um, that, that basically anybody in our society has. Um, there was, I knew that our family was a little bit unusual because um, I grew up next door to my cousins and my aunts and, and aunts and uncles there was a lot of um, a lot of family land, and my grandparents had a dream that um, that they would have this enormous family and have and have um, all their kids and grandkids living close to them. So it's very you know very unusual um, these days for families to be living that close together. Um, and in a way, it was like you know very um, you know in terms of nature, like like one of the most beautiful places I know, I know of. And we grew up, you know, being able to go to the beach and playing in the woods and on the marshes and just really grew up, um, really like in love with this natural setting. And, um, again, all what looked like, you know, all of the you know best things you could ask for. Um, and so, I want to talk about I want to talk about the land there because so many people do have a relationship with Cape Cod. They kind of um, whenever I tell people I'm from Cape Cod, people talk about their stories of um, you know going to the beaches there. And um, I mean, it's a place that really um, like touches a lot of people. And I definitely had that experience growing up. Um, but I also felt this um, kind of sense of melancholy in the land, and um, that. Um, you know, there was something, there was something kind of like, there's, it felt like there was some kind of like deeper story in the land that I couldn't quite, um, put my finger on. Um, and at the same time, as I was growing up, we were, we were seeing like a lot more development and there was just a lot of, um, I would say like just a lot of like nostalgia and, um, and like really like kind of wondering what the deeper story was. And I also, We'll say like we also knew that um, we knew that my family had been in this town for a really long time. There was actually like this historic um, house in town that um, had the same name as my grandmother, um, but I didn't really know what the story was. All, all we knew was like the stories that my grandmother would tell of her family and her her um, her, her parents being there. Um, so. So this is kind of my this is kind of my backdrop, you know. What is, you know what is it all about? I really um, resonate with um, kind of Kimmy's question of you know what do I do with that? What what do I do with this information? Or what do I do with this this life that I've been given? And I guess as I got older and I I started developing a stronger um, consciousness about um, social justice, I got really interested in. Um, how does social change work? What actually what actually works? What's needed to like um, to um, affect social change? I got really interested in engaged spirituality and studied lots of different um, spiritual systems about how um, how we can kind of like shift our own consciousness to change the world around us. And so I really you know for a long for many years now. Um, I've really been on this kind of personal quest about, you know, what is what does inner transformation look like? How can I address my own suffering, suffering of people um, that I'm close to? Um, and 
so I really, that search started looking at different spiritual systems and, um, you know, meditate, you know, med started with meditation and, um, kind of went on from there. And, um, you know, during those years I was basically traveling a lot. I was living in lots of different places and traveling the world, kind of going outside of my sphere, looking for, you know, looking for answers, looking for what works. And, um, two years ago I moved back, decided to move back to the East coast and um, I really felt like it was time to look more closely at this place, at this place where I'm from, where I do feel this strong, um, this strong connection. And, and as I said, I felt a sense of suffering in the, in the land itself and in the place. And, um, and I will say that that idyllic childhood that I had, you know, it didn't, it definitely didn't hold. And, um, my own, you know, in my own family, we experienced a lot of, um, you know, typical, um, you know, white middle-class tragedies of, you know, um, you know, broken families and, um, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Um, so that, that dream that my, that my parents had, that my grandparents had didn't, um, you know, was also, was also kind of crumbling in the backdrop. And that was also spurring a lot of this, of this searching, um, so over the past couple of years, I've been, um, studying, um, family constellations as a way of looking at ancestors. So in the beginning of my search, it was all about, you know, spiritual cosmologies. And, um, so what I'm learning about ancestral healing is that, so family constellations came, you know, was originated by, um, Bert Hellinger in Germany and um, I know Bert Hellinger worked a lot with Holocaust survivors. And the idea, you know, what a lot of people, you know, have been studying is, you know, social traumas like the Holocaust do get passed to um, their, their descendants. So people who, you know, people whose families, you know, were in these, you know, like abominable situations do experience them in their own systems, in their own um, bodies in a lot of ways. And so what I personally, you know, my personal healing story with family constellations is that, you know, I basically, the idea is that, you know, the ancestors are not, the ancestors are not this, um, you know, this huge cloud, this huge cloud of like, necessarily of, you know, benevolent, um, you know, people looking down on you, they are individuals who had lives and who had experiences that are still affecting us. And when everything is going well, we can feel their experiences in our own you know, bodies. We can feel like they're, you know, their blessings and their goodwill for us um, and their support. But when something, you know, when there was, um, when something happens, um, in one of, in one of, um, you know, somewhere in the family line, um, where there's like basically disruption of, um, um, where there's some kind of, um, disruption of that, you know, natural flow of, um, you know, resource coming through that tends to affect the descendants. And, um, so I'll just tell you, I'll just give you an example, um, of, of what I found in my own, um, story is that, um, so anyway, it very often happens when a person is excluded from the family system. So if you have somebody in your family line, for example, who um, died prematurely, or who was cast out of the family, or, um, you know, was considered the black sheep, 
um, and, and in some way wasn't acknowledged, then it's very likely that later on in the family line, that person's, um, it's like, you can't just, you can't just shut out somebody's life that that life is going to show up somewhere else. So their, their, um, their presence will be made no, known in, in other, um, in other ways and may manifest in their descendants line in, in certain ways. So just to give you an example, what I found is when I was looking at, um, you know, here I am with all this intention towards um, social change, um, you know, wanting to, you know, help transform myself and tra transform society. I was looking at where are, you know, what is, what is the, what is the block basically to that, um, to that personal intention that I have in my life. And um, in family constellations, you can kind of trace back, you know, who in your family system exactly is the source, based, first of all, that desire, and then who is the source of um, the thing that may be holding you back. And through, um, through a process of, of looking, at, looking at those two forces, um, I connected it with my great-grandfather. Now, my great-grandfather actually lived... Um, at the family land where I where I grew up, and he actually um, he was a he was a musician. He was a very um, he really he was very involved in his church, and he also really um, um, you know he was very connected to you know the spirit of the people. He perceived um, he perceived after world uh, before World War II that you know the spirit of the people was really. Um, kind of depleted and he he organized like community sing-alongs because he felt like that's what people really needed to um to become re-inspired um so it was very clear it was very you know connecting with him i knew some some of his story but connecting with him was really clear that like you know that, that's he's one of my sources for the, the desires that i have in my life and um the thing about my great grandfather is that he took his he took his own life, and after he took his life, um, the family had an agreement that, and this is very common in, in those days, but the family basically um, had an agreement that that um, his name would never be spoken ever again. <laughs> that it was such a shame on the family um, that he took his life that they wouldn't talk about him. And um, sure enough, my grand my father. Um, grew up never hearing any mention of his, his own grandfather. So that's an example of a way that like, you know, families exclude somebody from the system, but they, they, they can kind of like resurface. Now, once, um, once I kind of made that connection with my great grandfather and learned a lot more about his life, that seemed to have kind of opened up, um, a kind of energetic floodgate, um, I felt a different kind of vibrancy. My cousins, when I would tell, when I would just start reanimating him to my cousins, they also felt, um, re, I have to say reanimated in a way. And, and then that led me to a search kind of further back in my family line to, to try to understand what our origin, what, what our origin was in that particular town. And, um, it led me to, um, information that we didn't have. Like, like I said, nobody really knew the story of, um, how we ended up in that town. People would always say, oh yeah, your family's been there a long time, but we never really knew the story. And I was able to, um, find out a lot more about the first, you know, the first family members who, who were in that town and who, um, were the first colonists. And, um, 
this is kind of where I am now, where I am, I'm basically studying, um, you know, what it means to be a white settler and a white colonist and reclaiming that. I mean, it's not a, um, it's not an easy like history to reclaim, but, um, I'm finding it actually really energizing. So, um, one of the ancestors that I found was actually, um, his name is Richard Warren. He was on the Mayflower and he was one of these, um, people who, you know, they showed up in the Mayflower, they showed up in Provincetown Harbor and they went on this, um, you know, initial, um, you know, little, they got out into their um, small boat and were looking for a place to dock the Mayflower. Well, one of the first places they went was to, um, you know, they were looking around and they happened to find um, an, a grave on the ground, an Indian grave, and they actually stole um, things that were in that grave. And um, this is a really like, to me, a, you know, horrifying thing to find out about my ancestors at the same time, um, we know this is part of the colonial story, and it's very, it's very um, freeing actually to to acknowledge like the the role that my family played in it. So I found a lot of people, um, you know, from New England, um, you know, feel like white people feel a sense of pride. Oh, this is where I'm, you know, this is where I'm from. They feel some kind of entitlement to this place, and this is something I certainly grew up with. But it's been even more liberating for me to acknowledge the role that my family played in the colonization. And another thing that I learned from Family Systems Constellations is that um, is the relationship is is how to heal the relationship between victims and perpetrators. Um, and you know, if I trace back those those colonist ancestors, um, those first colonist ancestors that came to that area. Um, you know, what I see if I go back another, you know, a few hundred years is that they also, um, experience colonization themselves. So, you know, whatever land they were from, and, and this is where, you know, I may not have details, but I, but I do know that, you know, they were from, um, England, um, or, you know, or Western Europe and that those, you know, they were at some point, you know, driven out of their place by um, the Romans. And so the idea with um, working with victims and perpetrators is to acknowledge that, you know, the person who is, who is, um, vic you know, victimizing at one point, it is coming from some perpetration in the past. So that is actually, so just being able to acknowledge, first of all, to, to place the guilt. So there's this whole thing about who's holding the guilt. And if the person, you have to put the guilt on the person who it belongs to. And if you don't give it to the person that it belongs to, it just ends up like rippling through the system in ways that you, that in ways that you really, that nobody wants. So to be able to go back and put the guilt on my ancestor who deserved it, you know, the, the colonists who robbed the grave and said, you know, this is not, you know, this is not right. And this is your, this is basically your guilt to own. It's freeing for the perpetrator too to own, to own the guilt because they, um, and it's also freeing to acknowledge, um, you know, the colonists in me. I had an experience where I was just in a constellation where I was representing, um, the colonists and, it's, it's actually very powerful just to acknowledge the kind of power that that colonist feels and it helps you understand, you know, it helps basically two things. 
it helps you to understand, you know, feeling the sense of power that that colonist felt helps me to understand why and also understanding that they are basically carrying on um, a much earlier victimization, that they are basically just part of this, this, this cycle that's just continuing. I basically feel like that the way to stop that cycle is to see that the victim becomes a perpetrator, the perpetrator perpetrates on victims and so on. And basically that is the like insane cycle that we're caught in today. And lastly, I want—I just want to—I just want to finish by saying, you know, I—I I, I did grow up in this idyllic scenario, and it's basically everything. The scenario is basically everything that those early colonists were hoping for. They wanted to um, rebuild. They basically wanted to like bring, you know, an English village and, and plunk it down in the middle of North America as if nothing was there before, and. You know, and have family, have this nuclear family close together. Basically, you know, I was able to live that as a small child. Anyway, I was able to live that dream, but that dream, when it is at the expense of you know wiping out, wiping out another like entire culture, that that um, that karma is going to come through. And I saw that very clearly in my family. The way that um, suffering, broken, like I said, broken family, disease, suicide. You know, it just tore through my family, my, you know, seemingly blessed family. That kind of heartache just tore through my family like a hurricane. And so the people who look privileged, who seem to have, you know, seem to have everything because they've taken it from others, in the end, they don't win either. You know, the, the people who seem, who seem to have it all, they don't win either. Like, um... It's, you know, so basically this search has come from a place of brokenness. And I'm really, actually really excited about, um, about this ancestral lens. I feel like it's really, it's very powerful and there's a lot of, there's a lot of promise for me in learning how, yeah, how people can transform their own, their own, you know, their own suffering in their own family by working with individual people and, you know, finding who are those like power ancestors in your family that are flooding, wanting to like flood you with love and energy and also wanting to, you know, give back where the, where the, um, guilt belongs. Did you, did you find some of those like power ancestors? Cause you've told us about some of the people who were like, sort of like this person the perpetrators. Who from the graves, right? <laughs> or the, or the great grandfather who committed suicide, but I see, that? you know, in the end, um, you know, the great grand, a lot of them are mixed. So, mm-hmm. The great grandfather for me, he took his, I mean, he took his life, but he was also, he became a power, he became a power ancestor for me because mm-hmm. I was able to reconnect with um, the really strong aspects of his personality. So it's like a lot of these, a lot of these characters are going to be mixed, mixed characters. Um, you know, you know, there's, there's victimhood and perpetration kind of running at the same time. But like reanimating, so with this this amazing, <laughs> this great grandfather, um, when I started learning about him, um, I you know I wanted to find out more about his music and you know his musical life. I, mean, I believe he had very great intentions. He started these sing-alongs and then he started a harmonica band. And he had a band of um, you know a harmonica band of young young. Um, boys from the inner city that that were dressed up in like soldier costumes and they would go around the country, you know, performing. And actually when I started doing this research, I found 
an author who wrote a book on the harmonica and used him as a character that was published like three years ago. It's called Echo. Um, and so, yeah, I could go on, <laughs> but I'll stop there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, and Alyssa, I wanted to say, cause, um, what you said about how the ancestors can be mixed, you know, that's very mm-hmm. true for me. You know, not all of my ancestors are for my highest good. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to really, um, go and find out who's who energetically, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, um, I don't know, they have their own karma that they have to work out for themselves. And us here as humans, um, we need to figure out who and, you know, constantly figuring out what is for our highest good and what's Mm -hmm. for our highest purpose. And that includes the path of our lives as well as the ancestors and the people that have, you know, come before us. So, yeah, I really resonate with what you said there. Yeah. Right. Because, um, I mean, Carl Jung talks about this, that, you know, that the ancestors, the ancestors need us, you know, that they are, they need us to keep, you know, we are their continuation. They need to, you know, continue working out what they didn't get a chance to work out. So a lot of times, you know, things may show up in their, in our lives that aren't really us there. It's some kind of pattern, ancestral pattern that's trying to, um, work itself out. So it's, it's helpful if we can be in dialogue with them, um, and to be and to kind of, you know, sense into what, what may be showing up, you know, when we have something kind of showing up in our life, that doesn't really feel like us asking, well, who is, you know, who is this, who, which, which of you <laughs> in your own personal pantheon, you know, ancestral pantheon, you know, what, who, what's going on here and specifically who is it? Kimmy, I'm wondering, um, what has it looked like for you to connect with some of your ancestors? Like on a, have you been able to like on a more individual level? Uh, yeah. So, um, first of all, I had to learn how to get really clear and understand what my own energy was because I couldn't even begin to connect with ancestors or anything else really until I could know what was my stuff and what was not my stuff. So that journey actually started with me learning how to become really clear and owning my own energy and power and then really understanding it and learning how to work with it. So once I could get really clear in myself, then I could start you know, and then I would kind of practice kind of like small, I guess, you know, I would like, okay, my deceased grandmother, I'm going to connect with her energy because I understand that. And then I'd be like, okay, now I'm going to connect to her line and I'm going to see what that feels like. And then I would start to do that with all the other ancestral lines, even my adopted, I mean, my birth family, which um, I never thought I could do. I was like, let's give this a try. And it really worked. Um, Yeah. I'm wondering maybe like really with your birth family, especially having never known them. Yeah. What, how did that feel for you to connect with their energy? And I'm assuming, well, I, I know because we've been trained in some of the same techniques, but for people who are listening that some of this is done in like a meditative trance. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Some of it is in a meditative trance to get really clear. Um, but yeah, it was like, you know, there's a, just going back to like in, in utero, in the womb and just kind of feeling those, like the soup that I was in for nine months and and feeling that connection and like kind of just going back there and getting really visceral about it. And then there's, and then also just kind of like the birth father, um, line to try to figure out what that 
felt like. Um, it, but it, it felt really kind of familiar and it felt like, oh, I know this. I recognize this feeling from my birth mother. Like this has like popped up from time to time. And it's like, oh, that's what that was. Okay. Okay. And then it's like, all right, no, I'm just going to like meditate on that. And of course, meditating on it without bothering her energetic field too. And making sure I, I have the permission from her to be able to do that. And then doing that with her, her ancestral lines as well. Um, birth father was a little more difficult cause I didn't have that in utero stuff, but, um, yeah. And it's still a journey. Cause I still like, I, I, it's like, it took a while. Cause it's like, I think I got it. Maybe I got it. So then I'd have to wait a few days and then go back and like, is, was that it? And, um, but once I could start to like, just, it's like this like little tiny thread that you just start pulling and you, then you start realizing that there's a whole, you know, sweater unraveling and you're like, okay, that's, that's gotta be it. Yeah. So it was really, really empowering and really, it filled a lot of like the adoptee angst. I call it my black hole that I had around feeling like, so not connected to anything and anything like, you know, stuff like that. But I think, yeah. Yeah. So it's been a, it's, it's still a big journey, but it's a great one. It's one I really cherish. Yeah. I think that's a really great question, Rebecca. And it comes up a lot um, when people start talking about ancestors is what if I don't know? Um, you know, I have, I, you know, I'm lucky enough to have like somebody in my family who did a lot of the research, but you, everybody gets to a point where, you know, you just don't know much about their life. Um, one thing that, um, that I've been practicing with is that you can, you can place like objects in, um, in a row where you, you kind of, or you can just imagine, you know, you put yourself at the center and you put your, um, you know, your mother and father behind you, um, your mother on your left shoulder and your father on your right shoulder. And then you put your four grandparents behind them and your eight great grandparents behind them and you keep going. And if you place objects in this kind of configuration, a lot of people have found that if they just like pick up one of the objects that represents, you know, let's say great, great, great grandmother or something, they can kind of um, just hold that object and, and tune into it and may get some um, feeling, may get some feeling in their body or some images and that they can kind of keep, um, and kind of keep practicing with this. And in family constellations, what people do is they stand in that kind of configuration. And when you have different people standing in positions where they're representing different family members, they start to, um, you know, feel things or see things. You don't have to be necessarily psychic to be able to do this. Um, in family constellations, it just, it just kind of starts happening. So that's, that's one way that people can get access to this kind of information. Hmm. And let me ask you both, like, what would you say to people who would say, well, because even though you're talking about like sort of different techniques and maybe a little bit different approaches, you're both talking about what might be termed a psychic, energetic or Ooh. shamanic sort of like practices here, woo woo stuff, right? Like, what would you say to people who are like, you're just making this all up in your head. It's not real. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I kind of, I, you know, I definitely struggle with that and the, and the whole, not just that little question, but the whole energy work thing. Oh, is it not real? But I feel like, um, 
yeah, I feel like you have to, I guess, try it before you judge it, you know? And for me, you know, I can't deny how, uh, how beneficial it's been for me to connect to these lines and beneficial for me to, you know, um, go in and talk to the cowboy, the ancient cowboys from the 1700s and in, in a meditative state and be like, okay, what happened? What, what was going on? And be able to talk to all my other ancestral lines like that. Um, and for me, it, I don't know, I, it just, everything kind of falls into place. It just, the more meditation I do, the more information that I get, the more of a really great puzzle that comes up and really just, um, starts to make a lot of sense. So I, I mean, I just don't know how anyone could do it without, there's like, like our teacher, Rebecca, my teacher say, says that there's like no magic pill. You can't just take a pill. You actually have to do the work in order to do, to get there. So, um, I mean, I guess people have to want it too. You can't, I mean, you've got to want it. You've got to be at a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore. And I need something um, I need to do something for myself in order to feel better about my life. And that's where I've always been with my adoption. But then once I found out this thing about Taiji and that connection, I was like, oh, this is not a mistake. Like there's something here. So I don't know. I think there has to be that want and that need to really discover what that is for yourself. I think too, cause I was going to ask the same question, Rebecca and, um, because and even though I've sort of uh, reconnected or connected with, um, you know, the like intuitive healing arts and uh, like tarot and I do intuitive readings for people myself and um, all that stuff. There's always like that skeptic in my own head that's like, is this really real? And for me, it's like it doesn't even matter if it's real or not. Like if this is all stories, who cares? Like if it's going to help us with our healing and healing, uh, people around us and our relationships and, uh, and contribute to social change, then it kind of doesn't matter. Um, because we're all living in these stories anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's, and there can be power in fiction. Um, and so that's not to say that this stuff I do think is, you know, like what Alyssa and Kimmy are talking about is fake or anything. I just think it's sort of beside the point and people can find ways to connect to it. Um, and I think that even like traditional social justice work is a form of this type of healing. Like if you're, if you're doing a lot of anti-racism work, you're like healing the, the sins of our ancestors from 400 years ago. You're atoning for the suffering that, you know, let's say black people are still experiencing today or, um, like Kimmy's ancestors ex having experienced in the internment camps. And yeah. And, um, I would also say, um, I, I became, um, only convinced by seeing it and, um, I'd say that the proof is the proof is in the pudding and that in family constellations work, people do get um, a lot of um, you know personal shifts and um, I've seen a lot of people transformed by that work. I've seen people show up, people show up to those you know workshops. They don't feel like they have a psychic bone in them. And then when you put them in a field and ask them to re represent um, someone's uncle, they start you know they start feeling things. Um, and, and pe like I said, people experience like real change, real healing, 
Um, and I'll also say that, um, this whole woo thing is part, I believe is part of the system of the systems of repression mm. that we're still living mm. in from our ancestors. That is, that is part of, that is part of what needs to be reclaimed mm-hmm. and revealed. That that's part of, you know, when you talk about people who are exiled from their family or shut off or cut off or shut down, um, the mystics are basically people who were, who were shut down and cut mm-hmm. off and, si- and silenced. And um, we may just have to endure a little bit more of, um, you know, being called woo-woo in order to have our own um, cultural revitalization that is so needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the mystical path is a revolutionary path. And, mm-hmm. you know, nothing else seems to be working right now. So why not reclaim, um, you know, Kimmy spoke amazingly about how, um, you know, all, all of our, wherever we're from on planet earth, there was a tradition of, um, of knowing that everything is alive and that you can get information mm. and that interconnected and that you get information from all of these interconnections. And so, yeah, I feel like that's the work right there is, um, is reclaiming that and, and seeing how it works today in our, for our very practical problems. Mm-hmm. Being made fun of and being called woo-woo sure beats being burned at the stake. Yeah, right. <laughs> true. So true. Yeah. Also, this kind of makes me, it reminds me of um, what Kimmy was talking about earlier with uh, the way that we view mental illness in in this country and, oh, and yeah. how it's like if we went back in time or even in many cultures today and we looked at the shamans, uh, they definitely would look, you know, quote unquote, crazy Um in, in sort of what we view in this like highly rational, uh, way of living. Um, and I don't know if anybody wants to speak that, speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Yeah. I feel like there's such a, I guess, disconnect or a need to, um, be open to kind of the spirituality and this kind of new awakening that people are having around having, visions and seeing things and knowing things. And there's just a different level, I think, of connectedness and understanding now. Um, and so it's just kind of a hard thing to to bridge between the very rational kind of, you know, facts and figures, uh, kind of what uh, Western medicine um, versus this like, you know, Eastern, this kind of uh, just the woo-woo stuff. I don't know how else to describe it, but I mean, because what I was doing and why I got diagnosed was because I was trying to make sense of the world. And so because I just felt so out of control, like I didn't have control over anything. I was adopted. I didn't have a say in being adopted. And then, oh my God, I could see, I could see, you know, I grew up in the church. I could see eyes moving in the church paintings and angels coming off of the stained glass windows. And, um, and just, it was like, this is not normal. And I just didn't feel connection with my family. So I would draw these houses and, you know, just like, Oh, this world makes sense to me. This, I'm going to draw what I feel like makes sense to me. And I couldn't stop. I literally couldn't stop. I had a pile that was like three Mm. feet next to my bed. And, um, I couldn't stop. And when I was going to go to college, um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I was like, yeah, I can't stop. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be able to do this in front of my three, two roommates that I'm going to have in my dorm room. And so I just, 
really lost it. Um, and then, you know, was like, okay, went to a doctor, got diagnosed, went in, came out with bi- bipolar disorder because I wouldn't sleep. I would draw these houses for hours and hours and hours, get one hour of sleep for like a week or two. And then I would stop doing it. So bipolar and then depression, just because I had general kind of just kind of, I was just despondent, I guess. And then um, OCD because I couldn't stop mm. these drawings. Um, and then so I was on so many different kinds of medications to manage it. Um, but had I been able to be like, okay, no, I am not able to deal with this alternate reality and I don't know what it is except for the knowledge that um, in the Christian view, I am possessed by the devil. I'm going to go to hell. Um, you know, um, so yeah, I think if I had a way to talk about that, like, um, you know, with this intuitive mind that Rebecca and I are involved in, there's so many children, they have a kid's camp and kids come to free hailing Friday and kids come to all these community events. And I just look at them and I'm like, Oh my God, you're so far ahead of the game. Like you're just, it's going to be so cool. Like I just, it just makes me so happy because they're not going to have to bump up against conventional thinking. Yeah. Hmm. If we could all have been so lucky. (laughs) My evangelical parents are probably like freaking out right now (laughs) listening to all of this. (laughs) Well, the thing that's funny for me is because I grew up in evangelical charismatic environment was that like people were having visions and all kinds of this stuff. Right. right. (laughs) But it's a huge part of the tradition. It is. And it's there in the mystical tradition, too. But it's also like. Yeah, people get afraid of it and then they've got to like put it into certain boxes and like they're only okay if you have them within this certain framework. And um, at the time, I actually thought some of it was crazy because there was this thing that was going through charismatic Pentecostal circles for a while where people would just like start laughing and like flopping around on the floor like fish and think like weird things like that. And I was just like, what the hell is this? This is crazy. And so it was hard for me. And and then there were two, like people who would just come and say, like, God told me this, like he gave me a vision for you and I've got to tell you and this is what you need to do. And you'd be like, yeah, thanks, whatever. Like, keep your visions to yourself. OK. Um, and sometimes it was a way to control people. But there were also really what I think were legitimate experiences that people had. And so for me, I rejected that for a long time. Um And in some ways, I feel like me getting in touch with uh, these psychic, intuitive abilities, whatever you want to call them, is in some ways me reclaiming some of that stuff from my childhood with a different framework and with like a a different understanding. Um, But I'm like, maybe they weren't always as crazy as I thought that they were, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I I feel like, you know, part of... um part of the kind of like spirituality that people are discovering now is a lot more um, intuitive. You know, now that people are kind of going out on their own, people are more more and more like starting to realize they need to, um, you know, be in touch with their own, you know, intuition, their own connection to, you know, spirit as we understand it. And I, I think that is super encouraging and super empowering. And again, um, kind of what we need, um, for social transformation is for people to feel like more empowered by their own connection to spirituality. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in that, you know, you know, um, feeling more empowered about connection to spirit ancestors and also the earth. 
um, that this is that this feels like this is part of what's coming. It's going to naturally come along with um, with people becoming, you know, you know, tracing, you know, reclaiming these older, maybe older um, ways of being spiritual in the world. I personally have been super. Now that the now the floodgates have been opened, and that I I feel more access to these more ancient places that my ancestors were from, I've been looking into like you know Celtic spirit. You know what was Celtic spirituality? What was Nordic spirituality? What's what does Druidic spirituality look like? Where there's just a stronger understanding that you know the world is really alive, um, and that you know that this, you know spirit isn't everything. And I think even in early, you know, you see it even in early Christianity um, that um, that in very early Christianity, nature nature was regarded as as sacred and was capable of giving revelations. Um, it was it was it was on equal footing as the Bible, and um, it was only in the fourteenth. 14th and 15th century, where the Bible started to have a stronger, a stronger place um, than nature. So, and um, and there may be a lot of reasons why people, you know, kind of withdrew, withdrew a little bit from nature. Um, but I feel like th- that that um, that that basically will is part of what we're going to need to readjust to bring about the kind of shift of consciousness that's needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it even just reminds me of like, well, one thing I was thinking of just in this, this um, talking about people sort of reco- like recovering this, these old ways of being spiritual and being more open to visions and being psychic and intuitive and stuff is there's um, scripture that I grew up hearing all the time, especially being in a charismatic church where it says, in the end, last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men will like see visions and your old men will dream dreams and your old women will prophesy and your, you know, all this stuff. It was like everybody will have these gifts. And it's always so, yeah, like it just is like, I think there's real prophecies in all of our ancient texts, like from whatever tradition it is. And a lot of times they don't come true in the ways that the people who control them think they're going to come true. But like you see it happening. And I think about like where in in the Bible, too, it talks about like the rocks crying out and the and the the um, the, the trees of the fields like clapping their hands and stuff. And, and it's like we know we know that our earth is speaking to us right now. Like we see it, I think, with everything that's happening, that we're not separate from it and we can't. Um, it's not an inert dead thing that we can just use to exploit as we will, that it's, it is a a living, um, a living, breathing, uh, being, which we are a part of and we are in communication and connection with. Mm. Well, I think we're getting to the end of our time here. This has been an awesome conversation with both of you. I wish we could keep going, um, but we do have to wrap it up. So we like to end our episodes by asking for um, recommendations or just whatever it is that is nourishing and inspiring you right now. So Kimmy, would you mind sharing with us what is it that's nourishing and or inspiring you? Sure. Um, You know, lately I have been really trying to take better care of my body because without my body working 
for me. I can't do any of this work. And I'm constantly, constantly reminded of that. So I'm in one of the phases where I'm really hyper taking care of my body and trying to make it now a way of life instead of a, you know, oh, here's another pendulum swing of me taking care of my body. So um, I've just learned so many times that when I neglect my body, my spirit can't take care of anything that it needs to. So that's very inspiring and nourishing for me right now. Cool. What about you, Alyssa? Um, so as I, yeah, as I said, I'm really curious about, um, I've been studying a lot of history and looking at, um, the places, the places that we came from and, and, um, and how can we, um, how can we, you know, truly bring, truly arrive in America and truly bring all the places, um, that we came from. And so I've actually been, um, you know, looking a lot at like land and also the land where we're living now. And, um, I've been really inspired, um, by a native American historian named Evan Pritchard, who is, um, who I've been learning a lot from about, um, sacred places on the East coast and, um, and how we can, how we can see the land here where we live now as sacred that we don't have to, um, you know, think of them as being, you know, in some other, in some other place, but that, you know, how to reanimate the places where we're, um, the sacredness of the places where we live now. Cool. That sounds really interesting. And we will make sure that we include a link to that historian and their work in our show notes. What about you, Chelsea? Um, gosh, I have a couple of things. Let me see what I want to talk about. Um, so actually, um, I saw, well, actually, Alyssa and I uh, last weekend saw a guy talk, um, this man named David Abram, who wrote, uh, he wrote a book called The Spell of the Sensuous, and he's a geo-philosopher or an eco-philosopher and sort of talks about um, the world as a living thing and um, and talks about it in this really beautiful, mystical way without ever using words like spirituality or mysticism. And, um, but he talks about perception and, and, um, and our senses, like our, our five senses and how, you know, how that, how that sets up how we perceive the world. And he said something in his talk, um, that I went to last Saturday, um, where he talked about us living in the world, like turning our thought into we live in the world as opposed to on the world. And and not just as like a thought exercise that kind of um, changes our relationship to the world and makes us want to take care of it better, which is part of this thought exercise, but as like an actual thing. Like if we look at the air around us, that's actually part of the earth and the, um, the atmosphere is part of the earth and we're in that, you know, just like a fish is living in water. And so when we sort of start to realize that we're living in this earth, then, then we start to perceive it differently and have a different relationship to this air that I'm breathing in and, um, and, and forming words with, you know, so it just, it was like one sentence of him saying that we're living in the earth that sort of has been with me the last week. So that's been really inspiring and, um, and totally relates to what we've been talking about today. And what about you, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so for me, you know, what's been really inspiring me recently, and I, I actually shared this on Facebook the other day, but, um, 
just seeing all of these women come out and um, speak out against their about their sexual abuse and violence at the hands of powerful men. This is um, we're recording this um, during the week in which Harvey Weinstein was fired from his company um, and all these exposés have come out. And it's just been like it's like it's opened the floodgates for all these women in Hollywood to be able to talk about what they've been experiencing. Mm. And um, it just feels like there's a real turning of the tide, I think, with with this, with Bill Cosby, with the um, like Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes and all these people that have been these serial abusers and harassers of women that the women are finally like there's so many women that they've affected who have just been kept silent in fear and that there's something there's something that's shifting where women just aren't afraid anymore and they're willing to speak out and they're willing to support one another and come together and it to me that's so powerful and so inspiring and I think I like all of I think almost all women, we have those stories of sexual violence and harassment and things like that. And for me, I had this realization, like I used to have so much like embodied, like trauma around some of those memories. And it just feels like I don't have all of that anymore. And some of that has been no doubt because of the own the healing work that I've done in my own life. But it feels like there's also on. A, a cultural societal level, there is like something shifting as well. So that's been inspiring to me. Wow. Yeah. Yay. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. And thanks, Kimmy and Alyssa for joining us today. Yes. This was such a rich conversation and, um, and I'm excited to see more of the work that you're doing in the world and the healing that you're doing. And thanks Rebecca and Chelsea for doing this. I'm so glad this podcast is happening. I love it. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you all. You too. You too. Thanks, Kimmy. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.